This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, as many of you know, my name is Richard Hecht, and it is my great pleasure once again to welcome all of you to yet another uh, Taubman Symposium in Jewish Studies. Before I briefly introduce our speaker tonight, I would like us to recognize and to thank the many individuals and foundations that year in and year out help us sponsor events like we're going to enjoy this evening. Will you join me, please, in showing our great appreciation to all of those people? I'm sure that there are more than a few of you who think that the program committee, Leonard and myself, were very astute to invite Randall Schoenberg shortly after the release of the Monuments Ren. How many of you thought that? Raise your hands. Right? But it's really a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, like many of you, we have been reading about Randall Schoenberg and the Bloch-Bauer-Klimp paintings for several years. But it was the discovery uh, of more than 1,400 paintings in Munich last year that made us in the program committee want to learn more about the looted art uh, paintings uh, throughout uh, Europe. And thus, we wanted to invite someone who has been an indefatigable and courageous, may I say, warrior in the effort to reclaim art stolen from Jews during the Holocaust. The Taubman Symposium, from its very beginning 18 years ago, uh, has been interested in how the Jewish experience has intersected the cultures in which Jews have made their own histories. Reportage of looted art has become increasingly a part of the news, in large part because of men and women like Mr. Schoenberg, um, and recently a correspondent for the New York Times reported on how she had become interested in the more than 2,000 unclaimed works of art looted or sold under the most murky circumstances during the Second World War in France. <clears throat> Only 80 such orphaned works have been returned, and the rest sit or hang in 57 French museums, which are their custodians and guardians. Um, Schoenberg and Maria Altman have been engaged in a profoundly important task for all of us. Yes, the Klimt paintings belong to a particular Jewish family and had their origins in a particular milieu of Belle Epoque, Vienna. But they are also part of our collective patrimony. Thus, E. Randall Schoenberg has wrested these paintings from the historical and human processes set in motion by National Socialism, and his victory in the Supreme Court against extraordinary odds, according to many lawyers, has very important implications for the return of other works that really belong to all of us. Will you please now welcome E. Randall Schoenberg.
Good evening, good evening, everybody, and thank you again for such a nice introduction, Professor Hecht. It's a real pleasure for me. Let them adjust the uh, the volume. It's a real pleasure for me to be here at UCSB in Santa Barbara to speak about this case. Uh, my father still recalls the summer he spent here in Santa Barbara in 1948 when my grandfather, the composer Arnold Schoenberg, was teaching at Music Academy of the West uh, with Lottie Lehman. And here we are in Lottie Lehman Hall. Uh, so it's really uh, a, a ni nice to come full circle and a really an honor for me to be here. So I'm here to speak today about the case that I handled for our uh, family friend, actually family friend on my mother's side of the family, uh, Maria Altman, who would also be tickled the, that I am speaking in Lotte Lehman Hall because she was a huge fan of opera and could quote from basically any opera uh, and, and did so frequently during, uh, during my work with her on this case. So let's get into uh, the famous case of the Klimt paintings and Maria Altman's story. Uh, Maria was the fifth and last child of Gustav and Teresa Blochbauer. Who were the Blochbauers? Uh, a little history. In Vienna, uh, Jews really did, weren't allowed to live there much until after 1848. And after that time, especially after 1867, when Jews obtained full civil rights in Austria, uh, there was basically a flood of Jewish families from the surrounding areas of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, what's now Czech, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, and parts of Galicia, into Vienna. And many of these families took advantage of the Industrial Revolution that was going on at that time and were able to get involved in industries and invest in companies that became fabulously successful. And the Blochs were one of these families. There was a uh, Ferdinand and Gustav Bloch. Uh, Ferdinand, the younger brother, let's see if I can show him there, uh, became the president of the Austrian Sugar Industry Corporation. Uh, if you've been to Vienna and you've eaten the pastries, you know how important sugar is to their diet. This became one of the largest sugar companies in all of Central Europe. They didn't uh, use cane sugar, by the way. It was beet sugar in that part of the world. Uh, and he became fabulously wealthy. So there were two boys named Bloch, Ferdinand and Gustav. Uh, and they married two girls, two sisters named Bauer, Adela and Teresa. So here are the older ones, Gustav and Teresa, who married first. And then the younger siblings, Ferdinand and Adela. Gustav and Teresa had five children, I mentioned. The youngest was, was Maria. Uh, but unfortunately, Ferdinand and Adele were unsuccessful having children. There were several stillborn babies. Uh, she lost a number of pregnancies. And uh, so tragically, they did not uh, have any children. But perhaps to compensate for that, they amassed an enormous art collection. They became real connoisseurs and collectors of art. Now, Ferdinand, who was somewhat older than Adela, a little bit more conservative, you can see him here uh, after a hunt, he liked the traditional 19th century style Austrian painters, uh, people you may never have heard of but were very famous in their day, Fernand Waldmuller or Rudolf von Alt. Uh, Adela, on the other hand, was a woman, a modern woman, uh, in, the, in the early sense of that term. Uh, she 
was the type of person who would have gone on to a professional career and studied uh, if she were living today. But at that time, uh, that just wasn't done if you were the daughter of a banker married to the president of a sugar company. And she instead surrounded herself with artists and intellectuals and formed one of the really the premier salons in Vienna where she entertained the likes of Gustav Klimt and uh, famous writers like Schnitzler and people like that. Um, who was Gustav Klimt? Gustav Klimt was the most famous artist in Vienna at 100 years ago at the turn of the 20th century. He was the most expensive artist in Vienna. And he was supported in his somewhat modern, somewhat impressionist style by a number of these newly rich Jewish families like the Blochbauers. The Blochbauers, as you'll hear, owned as many as seven paintings by Gustav Klimt. Uh, there was another family, the Lederer family and the Zuckerkandl family. Each of them owned eight to ten paintings by Gustav Klimt. So this, just these three Jewish families alone supported Klimt and bought perhaps as many as 30% of his total output before he died in 1918. So Adele uh, and Ferdinand commissioned Klimt, let's go ahead, uh, to paint this beautiful portrait of Adele in 1907. Uh, she's still in her 20s. In this, and Klimt paints one of his most magnificent portraits, the famous gold portrait. Uh, It has this sort of gold mosaic. There are only four paintings that Klimt did in that style. Uh, The more famous one would be the kiss that's probably on the dorm room walls of every other dorm room at UCSB here. Uh, And this would be maybe the second most famous of that gold style, the portrait of Adele Blochbauer. And they kept this painting and the others, which I'll go through, in their palais here on the Elisabethstrasse in Vienna. Uh, If you've been to Vienna, Vienna has a, a large boulevard called the Ring that circles the inner city. And one street after that is the Elizabeth. So this is really one block away from the ring. It's about a block and a half away from the famous opera and the main part of Vienna. It's a beautiful palais, and they filled this with their artworks, uh, including the Klimt paintings. I wanted to go back and show you also the, the Blochbauers had this castle outside of Prague, just to show you how they, how they lived. Uh, and uh, this is near where the Blochs were from in Bohemia. This summer home was, of course, taken, just as an aside, uh, this summer home was taken by the Nazis when they invaded Czechoslovakia in 1939 and made the home of the Reichsprotector of Bohemian Moravia, a man named Reinhard Heydrich. He's famous, of course, or infamous for uh, really starting up the final solution with the famous Wannsee Conference. He planned that whole conference while he was living in Ferdinand and Adela's summer home. Uh, and then was assassinated two months later, leaving the home on his way to Prague, uh, which resulted in the famous massacre of the people of Lidice in retaliation. So that's just an aside in this amazing story. So the Blochbauers, as I said, uh, commissioned and bought a number of paintings by Gustav Klimt. So first was this beautiful portrait. Adela sat actually for a second full-length portrait. She's the only sitter who has two full-length portraits from Klimt, I believe. This one, of course, in a much different style. You can see some Japanese influence, perhaps. Uh, Much cooler picture. They also owned some landscapes, this early beechwood or birch tree, depending on whether you look at the thin trees or the thick ones. They give it different titles. Uh, Beautiful. 
This apple tree, which may have been painted while Klimt was visiting with the Blochbauers in their estate outside of Prague. Uh, they bought, probably from Klimt's estate, this slightly unfinished painting. Let me see if I can point it out to you for the art people. See, it's a slightly unfinished painting, so it probably was left over in Klimt's estate after he died uh, during the flu epidemic in 1918. And they had this beautiful number three of the Schlosskammer am Attersee series. Uh, so there are these six paintings by Klimt uh, that they had purchased. And then uh, Adele, unfortunately, died very suddenly in uh, 1925 of meningitis. This was, of course, before penicillin. Uh, nowadays, she would have been cured, but then she died very quickly. And she had left behind a will that she had written two years earlier after her mother had passed away. Uh, it's a handwritten will. These are two of the four pages. And it's, it's uh, not completely unsophisticated. It actually looks like she may have had some help from her brother-in-law, Gustav, Ferdinand's brother, who was the lawyer for the family. And in fact, she names Gustav as the executor of her estate. Now, she makes a number of bequests in this. And, and as I said, Adela was a very uh, social person. She had uh, this salon, and she was also very civic-minded. Uh, her niece, Maria, sort of jokingly called her a socialist socialite. Uh, she was very left-leaning and very much supportive of the new socialist government in Austria at that time. And so she made various bequests to uh, the Workers' Society and the Orphan Society in Vienna. And right over here, she talks about the Klimt paintings. And she says, my two portraits and the four landscapes of Gustav Klimt, bitte ich meine Ehegatten. That means I ask, please, my husband, after his death, to give them to the Austrian State Gallery in Vienna. And at the same clause, she also talks about their library outside of Prague, which is supposed to go to the, uh, the Workers' Society. Now, uh, in 1925, when she died, uh, the will was probated by her brother-in-law, Gustav. And Gustav submitted a document to the court, and he presented the will in an interesting way. He said, the, the, the deceased makes certain requests in her will which do not have the binding character of a testament. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, if you've gone through the process of making a will, you know there are a lot of formalities that we require for wills, signatures and witnesses and things like that. And one of the, uh, one of the formalities that we require is that you be very precise in a will. And in wills, we differentiate between a, a direction, right, a testamentary direction, and language which, are, which is called precatory. Precatory language is just a request. So to give you an example, uh, if, I, if my wife and I had a dog and I said in my will, dear wife, after I'm gone, please take care of the dog. Okay. And as soon as I drop dead, she says, thank God we're getting rid of that dog tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. Because it was just a request, right? It was precatory. Please take care of the dog. If on the other hand, I had said, as a condition of receiving a penny from my estate, you must take care of our dog in the manner to which he has become accustomed till his dying day, right? That's not precatory. That's clearly language that is meant to be binding. So at, interestingly, at the time, Ferdinand's brother, Gustav, writes that this language they consider precatory, right? Not binding. However, he wrote that Ferdinand 
promised to fulfill his wife's wishes anyway. In other words, he wasn't bound to, but he promised to do so. And certainly in 1926, he fully intended to fulfill his wife's wishes and give these paintings after his death to the Austrian gallery. And then he adds one more clause, and he says, it should be noted that the paintings were not her property, but his. Sort of interesting. Remember, this is not a community property state back in 1920s Austria, right? So the, the man owns the property. And the rule actually is that it's presumed to be his property. Now, she had property. She owned half of their beautiful house in Vienna, for example. Uh, but at the time that she died, these were not considered part of her estate. They were his. So presumably, he's the one that purchased the paintings from Klimt, and they were considered his and not, not hers. So even though she says, my two portraits and the four lands, landscapes, perhaps she was referring to the portraits of me, not portraits belonging to me. Uh, At least that's how it was seen. Okay, so uh, what happens next? In 1936, Ferdinand, who is by now the president of the Friends of the Austrian Gallery, actually gives this painting before he died, right? Adela said only afterwards, but before he died, he gives this painting to the Austrian Gallery uh, to to assist with their collection. So that leaves him with five. He then he picks up, in the meantime, another Klimt painting, which we probably uh, won't talk about, but let's see if I can show it to you, this portrait of his friend Amalia Zuckerkandl. Uh, so he ends up with six, but not the same six that Adela talked about in her will. So uh, in 1938... The world turns upside down for Austrian Jewish families when the Nazis annex Austria in the famous Anschluss of March 1938. For prominent Jewish families like the Blochbauers, this was a catastrophe. And people like Ferdinand Blochbauer had to flee immediately. And so he left actually on the eve of the Anschluss and fled the country and went first to his summer home in Czechoslovakia. And then when the Nazis surrounded that, uh, six months later, he went to Zurich, Switzerland. And he actually stayed in a hotel in Zurich, Switzerland, living off of uh, money loaned to him by friends until the end of the war and died, unfortunately, just after the war ended in November 1945, never having returned to Vienna, never having recovered any of his property. But he survived. Uh, As I said, he had no children. What happened to the rest of his family? His brother Gustav had remained behind and uh, became very ill and actually died in June of 1938. His widow and children then prepared to leave. And for the most part, they were able to escape by uh, September, October, November of of that year. Um, His widow, Teresa, and their three sons managed to uh, get out and go to Vancouver, Canada, where they ended up. Uh, The daughters, a little bit differently, they had the daughter, Louisa, was married to a Baron Gutmann in Croatia. And they thought they would go there and avoid the Nazis. But, of course, the Nazis uh, and their collaborators in Croatia then took over. And so they were nearly deported several times but managed to survive the war, she and her husband and two kids, in Croatia. Unfortunately, at the end of the war, her husband, who had hidden uh, during the Nazi period, was then arrested by the communists and executed for being a capitalist uh, in the post-war period. And so she then escaped and went to Israel with her two children and ended up also in Vancouver, Canada. The youngest in the family, Maria, has a different story. 
Maria had been married in December 1937. She was just 21 years old. She turned 22 in February of 1938. Uh, So just a few weeks after her birthday, the Nazis then invaded. She had been married for two months, and uh, she found herself in a much different circumstance, obviously. Her husband was Fritz Altman, an aspiring opera singer. He would also be really happy that I'm speaking here in Lotte Lehman Hall. Uh, and he was the younger brother of a, another famous industrialist named Bernard Altman. Bernard Altman was a sweater manufacturer. He amassed an enormous fortune in Vienna uh, and later in the United States. Like Ferdinand Blochbauer, Bernard Altman had to flee immediately when the Nazis came in. And he Uh, He was really smart. So he had this sweater company, and he wired all of his customers and said, don't send any money to Vienna. I'm going to come and pick it up. And so he went to Budapest and Rome and Paris and London and picked up all the receivables that were due his company, took the money, and bought a new factory in Liverpool, England, and started up a business there like that, right? He's like the type of guy, if you put him on a deserted island on Friday, he'd be a millionaire by Monday. So the Nazis didn't like this because the Nazis, when they annexed Austria, they took over these Jewish-owned companies like the sugar company, like Bernard Altman's textile firm, and uh, Aryanized it. That means they replaced the, the Jewish officers and directors with non-Jews who were Nazis and basically stole the companies. Uh, so they were very upset with Bernard for taking all the money that belonged to his company uh, and starting up this new company in England. So they accused him of all sorts of wrongdoing and then arrested his younger brother, Fritz, the opera singer, and basically held him ransom. They sent him to Dachau, one of the early concentration camps in southern Germany. And Fritz spent several months in Dachau until Bernard was able to make enough money in England that he could send money back to Austria and basically ransom his younger brother. So he made a deal with the Nazis, sent back the money, got his brother out of Dachau. Uh, Fritz was then still under house arrest. They actually lived in the, in the Bernard Altman um, complex with the factory. And uh, Fritz and Maria were held under house arrest for several months until Bernard then was able to engineer their escape. Uh, They gave the slip to their Gestapo watchman and managed to board a plane that flew to northern Germany and then crossed the border uh, illegally into Holland and to freedom. Uh, They went then quickly to Liverpool, and then Bernard sent them to Fall River, Massachusetts, where he was starting up yet another textile factory. Uh, They stayed there for a year or two and then came to Los Angeles, where they reconnected with some of their old Viennese friends, my mother's parents, uh, Eric and Trudit Seisel. And that's really how I get into the story 70 years later, because my mother grew up with the Altman kids as as really her closest friends. So Maria is down here. The rest of the family is up there. Ferdinand dies in 1945. The war is over. And uh, what happened to the paintings, right? They don't know. But here's what we found out. Uh, In 1939, in January, there was a meeting held in Ferdinand's home in Vienna. And attending this meeting were representatives of all of the local museums in Vienna, uh, representatives of the Gestapo, the secret police, representatives of Hitler and Goering, who were interested in acquiring art from Jewish collections, um, and also a lawyer who had been assigned to liquidate Ferdinand's estate, a man by the name of Erich Fuhrer. 
That was his last name was Fuhrer. A big Nazi uh, who actually Ferdinand had hoped would save his estate uh, from the taxes that were being imposed on him. But he then turned, of course, and became the liquidator. Uh, What the Nazis did, by the way, is they accused Jews like Ferdinand of tax evasion. They couldn't defend themselves, having fled. The judgments would then be put in place, and they would then use those judgments to liquidate the entire the entire estate. And so that's what happened to these paintings. And they had a meeting to decide which paintings would go to which museum and which collection. So as I said, Ferdinand had this conservative taste. He liked the 19th century Austrian artists. There was another guy who really liked those paintings. His name was Adolf Hitler. Okay? Adolf Hitler had studied art in Vienna, was very conservative. When he went around Europe amassing paintings, he liked these same conservative ones. And so he actually took a couple of the paintings from the Blochbauer collection for his own personal collection. Hermann Goering also got a couple. And the other uh, works were distributed. Uh, the Blochbauers had a 300-piece antique porcelain collection. That's cups and saucers, 300 settings. Those were auctioned off. There was a giant auction, and they were sold off. Uh, one of the local museums got about 30 settings, and the rest were just strewn all over the place. Um, and so what happened to the Klimt paintings? So let's go back to those, and I'll tell you. It's a little complicated. Sorry, I don't... Like the facts, you have to live with whatever happened. Uh, can't make them up. So the, Dr. Fuhrer makes a deal with the Austrian gallery and says, I'll trade you the gold portrait and the apple tree. Where is it? Okay, apple tree and the gold portrait. I'll give you that if you give me back the Schlosskammer am Attersee painting, the, the castle painting that Ferdinand had given. So Dr. Fuhrer gets this painting back and then sells it to a guy named Gustav Uschitzky. Okay, who is Gustav Uschitzky? He is a famous Nazi film director. He, his most famous movie was, a, was called Heimkehr, or Returning Home. It was about the invasion of Poland. And he made an enormous amount of money with these Nazi propaganda films and used the money then to buy paintings by his father, Gustav Klimt. Yes, Gustav Uschitzky is one of the 18 illegitimate children sired by Gustav Klimt. (laughs) And he collected his father's works during the war, principally from Jewish collections. Now, this one had been in the museum, was traded out and sold to him. Sort of interesting. Yeah, Klimt, they say that Klimt painted in a long smock with nothing on underneath. (laughs) And... And not necessarily the society ladies like Adela, but for his, his models that he picked up off the street, apparently a lot of them became pregnant after, the, uh, after they posed for him. So, okay. Uh, so that's the gold portrait and the apple tree are now in the museum. The other one that was in the museum is now out. Uh, the museum then buys from Dr. Fuhrer the second portrait of Adela. So they end up with two portraits and the apple trees. The Beechwood is purchased by the City Museum of Vienna from the estate. And houses in Unterach is kept along with 11 other paintings by Dr. Fuhrer to pay himself for a job well done. Right? (laughs) So at the end of the war, the paintings are in a number of different places, right? Gustav Oschitzky has this one. Dr. Fuhrer has this one. The museum, uh, Austrian gallery, has this one. The city museum has the birch trees. And then the two portraits are in the Austrian gallery. Now, when uh, Ferdinand died in November 1945, he left behind a very short will. And it said, 
I give my estate to my two nieces and one of his nephews. And his estate at that time consisted of nothing other than the hope that they could recover property that had belonged to him in Austria and Czechoslovakia. He had recovered nothing and had nothing. So it was then up to his two nieces and nephew to try to recover what they could. And they hired a family friend, Dr. Gustav Rienisch, a lawyer in Vienna, who was given the task of trying to find and recover Ferdinand's property. And it included also uh, issues relating to the sugar company and the house, right? And the, all these different assets that they had. And, of course, the artworks. Uh, so he, it took him until the end of 1947 before he found that the Klim paintings were in the Austrian gallery. Most of the museums were closed after the war. And he wrote to the Austrian gallery and said, what is your position with regard to my client's claims of restitution? And the gallery responded in January of 1948 with a letter that said, these paintings were given to us by Adele Blochbauer in her will when she died in 1925. We own all six paintings mentioned in the will. We only have three of them. So not only are we not giving you these three back, but you have to go find us the other three and give them back to us, right? Even the one that that the museum itself had given back to Dr. Fuhrer and was now with Ushitsky. So they took a very aggressive approach. Uh, Dr. Rienisch, the family lawyer, had found a number of other artworks. He found the 12 paintings that Dr. Fuhrer had kept, for example, which included one of the Klimt's. Um, he also contacted the Munich Art Collecting Point. Now, for those of you who have already seen The Monuments Men, you know a little bit more about this than back before the movie when I had to explain it. But the U.S. government had a, a, a troop of, of art historian soldiers who went and collected artworks uh, throughout Germany that were taken by the Nazis. And... Uh, mainly from large collections that were stored in salt mines in Salzburg and outside of Munich, the collections of Hitler and Goering. And as I mentioned, a couple of these paintings and that were from the Blochbauer collection. But unfortunately, the Monuments Men and the U.S. government had an interesting procedure. They decided they weren't going to give back paintings to any individual. They weren't going to handle individual claims. That wasn't their business. What they decided was they would return the paintings to the country of origin. So if the works were stolen from France, they would give them back to France and let France decide what to do with them. If they were from Holland, give them back to Holland. Austria, give them back to Austria. And so the procedure for a family like the Blochbauers was they had to apply to the Austrian government to write to the U.S. government in Munich to request that these paintings be sent back to Vienna. Uh, which is what happened in this case. So several of the paintings were sent back to Vienna. Then Dr. Rienisch had to make an application to recover the paintings. And when he did and wanted to send them out of the country to his clients, he had to apply for an export permit. Remember, his clients were in Canada and Los Angeles. And Austria then used this procedure after the war to extort paintings from Jewish families, unfortunately. And not just with the Blochbauers, but the Austrian Rothschilds and the Laterers and all of these other big Austrian Jewish families that had managed to survive outside of Austria and wanted their artwork sent to them, uh, they had to apply for export permits. And what Austria would do is they'd say, no, 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 these artworks are too important to our country. We can't let them out of the country. And if the family appealed, 
they would say, well, we might be willing to let some artwork out if you donate these other ones, right? So it was like a quid pro quo. We'll let you let some out. You give us the others. And this happened to many families. So Dr. Renish was faced with a dilemma. He knew that he couldn't get any of the artworks out that he had recovered without making some sort of deal like this. And also with the Klimt paintings, there was this dispute because they said it was Adele Blochbauer's will that gave them the paintings. So he had not seen the will. Actually, the Austrian gallery had, had collected the legal file, so he wasn't even able to see it until the day he met with the Austrian officials in April 1948, and he made an agreement with them that day. He looked at the will, and he wrote to his clients the next day, which is how we know this. And he said, well, the will may or may not be binding, right, because he had seen the language. He said, but there's this promise of Ferdinand. And so what I did was I told them, we wouldn't fight over the Klimt paintings. We'll let those stay in the Austrian gallery, but we want to have export permits for all the other works, the several dozen other works that we recovered. And this deal worked. Over the next 12 months, he was able to export several dozen recovered paintings to his clients. The Klimt paintings, unfortunately, stayed in Vienna. They had to donate donate a few other uh, Klimt drawings and porcelain settings. But for the most part, this procedure worked as well as, as he could get it to work. Um, and he left the Klimt paintings in Vienna. So if you had asked Maria Altman, the baby of the family, right, who let her brother do most of this with Dr. Renish, you'd asked her what happened to the portrait of your, your aunt Adela. She would say, oh, well, it's too bad, my aunt gave these to the museum in her will, and we never recovered them uh, after the war. And that's really where things stood until 1998. At the end of 1997, beginning of 1998, there was an exhibit in New York City of Austrian artwork, not, not Klimt paintings, painting by his, his uh, contemporary Egon Schiele. And uh, there was an allegation from two families that two works in that, that exhibit were stolen. And the district attorney in, in New York, Morgenthau, decided that he would seize them as stolen property. And so very suddenly he seized these two paintings. It was international news. And in Austria, it created outrage. And the Austrian Minister of Education and Culture went on TV and she said, this is ridiculous. We don't have looted paintings in Austria. Everything was given back after the war. We can't be accused of such things. Well, there was a journalist in Austria, a terrific guy named Hubertus Chernin. And Hubertus decided to take a look and see if that was correct, if they didn't have any looted paintings in Austria. And he looked at the provenance of a number of works in Austrian museums. And this painting, although in the guidebook to the Austrian gallery, it said that it had been donated by the Blochbauer family in 1936, he went into the file and he saw the letter from Dr. Fuhrer in 1941, signed Heil Hitler handing over this painting. So he thought, this is not right. And he figured out uh, also after the war that there was this extortion procedure. So he wrote a series of articles, a real expose in 1998. And the Austrians, to their credit, decided they would then study this. And at the end of the year, in, in September of that year, they proposed a new law. And the new law said that if we have in our federal museums artworks that were never returned or were returned and then donated in exchange for export permits for other paintings, we're going to give those back. And at this point, Maria got a call from Austria and, uh, about this new law. 
And so she, she tried to call my mother to ask me. She knew I was a young lawyer and thought maybe I could help her with it. And uh, she tried to call my mother, but my mother was actually in Austria at the time with my dad. Uh, and so she called me at the office. I was working downtown in Los Angeles, and I was 31 years old. And, uh, and she called me and said, hi, this is Maria. And I knew who she was. She's an old family friend. Uh, hadn't seen her for, for a number of years. Um, and she said, I just got this call from Austria, and maybe you don't know this, but there were these paintings. And I said, no, I know a little about it because I was just online reading the Austrian news. My parents were in Vienna, so I had gone online to try to read what was happening in Vienna. And there, sure enough, was this article about artworks that I had read, and it mentioned her family. And so I said, no, I just read about it. It seems really interesting. And so she said, well, I'd like to talk to you about it. Uh, So we met. Her sister had just passed away. She was really, Maria was the last one in her family. Uh, from that generation, and she had collected all of these documents, and she brought them to me, and I looked at it, and I said, wow, this really looks like you might be able to get these paintings back, because we had the, the lo- letter from the lawyer saying that he had made this deal, and it looked like this new law might allow her to recover the painting. So I said, I'd love to help you with this, and I convinced my law firm to, to let me do this, and uh, and it, in the beginning, it was just dealing with whatever Austrian procedure they had set up. Uh, the new law that they passed in Austria didn't allow you to sue to recover artworks. It set up just a commission, an internal commission, uh, that, that they appointed people to. There wasn't a single Jewish person on the committee. Uh, and they were going to decide on their own what paintings to return and what not. And so I wrote to the commission. I said, I'm helping represent Maria Altman and her family. Uh, we know you're looking at their, their collection. Uh, we have a lot of documents. Would you like to see them? And I didn't get any response so, for about four weeks. So I said, okay, well, they really should see these, whether they want to or not. And I sent them off, and they said, thank you, but we're going to take care of it ourselves. Um, I found an Austrian lawyer to prepare some legal opinions on the will of Adele Blochbauer uh, and sent those in, and then I called up, and, and the... Uh, and said, I'd like to come and speak to the committee. And they said, no, no, we don't allow anybody to speak to our committee. Uh, and uh, I said, well, it's sort of difficult, you know, being so far away. And they said, well, no, we're going to take care of it. And sure enough, in June of ni- 1999, the committee met and announced that they were not returning the Klimt paintings. Uh, they decided they would return some porcelain and drawings, but the Klimt paintings were not going back. And the reason they gave was that the will of Adele Blochbauer gave these paintings to the museum. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem right because Maria's father didn't think that was right. Maria's lawyer, Dr. Renish, didn't think that was right. And I, looking at it myself, it didn't, didn't feel right, didn't seem right. I said, Maria, I think we really should pursue this. So how would we pursue it? We decided to look for an Austrian lawyer who would take the case. And uh, I found one, a man named Stefan Guldner, and he said, well, the new Austrian law doesn't allow you to sue, but maybe we can make some sort of declaratory relief type lawsuit. And he drew something up and said, okay, we're ready to file it, but you realize that you have to pay court costs in Austria. I said, okay, what is it? It's a few hundred dollars in the United States. I didn't think that it would be so expensive in Austria. He said, no, you have to deposit a percentage of the value at stake in the litigation. (laughs) So at this point, the paintings were already very famous, and we had estimates that they were worth over $100 million. She might have to pay $2 million 
just to proceed with the case in Austria. So we said, of course, that's not possible. He said, well, let me try to get it reduced. So he made an application to the court saying she didn't have enough money. Could you reduce the requirement? And the court said, well, yes, that doesn't make sense. She doesn't have to pay more than everything she owns. She just has to pay everything she owns. <laughs> Literally, all of her assets other than her house, she would have had to deposit in the, her entire life savings. And she was at that time uh, 86 years old. So we said, no, no, that's not, that's not going to happen. Uh, and, uh, and so then I said to Marie, I said, well, let me see. Maybe you can sue in Los Angeles, right? You're, you've been a citizen here for since the 1940s, since before the trade of the painting, uh, why can't you sue in, in the United States? And I very naively opened up the federal rules of civil procedure and found a, a section which is called the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976. So not surprisingly, you can tell by the title, the, the general rule is you cannot sue a foreign state. And remember, these paintings were owned by Austria, foreign state. Foreign states are generally immune from prosecution. They, are, they have sovereign immunity. But there's an exception that I read in the law, and it wasn't used very often, hardly ever. And the exception said, if the property was taken in violation of international law, right, Nazis, I thought we could argue that, if the, the property was owned or operated by an agency or instrumentality of a foreign state, so in this case, they were owned or operated by the museum, which was acting as an agency or instrumentality of the foreign state. And that agency or instrumentality is engaged in a commercial activity in the United States, then you can sue. So all I had to show was that the museum did something in the U.S. And I found a book that they sold, right? They, had, they, used, uh, they advertised for tourists. They accepted U.S. credit cards. I thought... We could, we could maybe use this section of the law. So I went to my, my law firm and I said, you know, I really think I should be able to do this case. And they said, forget it. Uh, they're not in the business of, of tilting at windmills. Uh, and, uh, and they said, no way. So I actually, I left the big firm that I was at and I, I it was around the birth of our second child. Uh, and that summer, I prepared a complaint for Maria Altman, and I filed a complaint against Austria in federal court. Uh, didn't cost $2 million. It was $215 or something like that. And the idea was, let's, let's see where this goes. Let's, let, let's keep the case alive. So Austria responded by hiring a nice Jewish law firm, Proskauer Rose. Uh, Maria said, what do you mean Jewish law firm? I said, well, if you look at the list of lawyers... Um, they have 20 lawyers in New York and Los Angeles with names like Levy, Levin, Levine, that type of thing. So, okay. Uh, they're a traditional, traditionally Jewish law firm. Uh, Judge Proskauer was, was very involved in uh, American Jewish Committee, Congress. I always get them confused. Anyway, uh, so uh, the lawyer they hired ended up actually not being Jewish, but I, I think they thought, I was told that they thought he was. Uh, and they... <laughs> The law, the law firm, of course, responded to our complaint by seeking to dismiss it, filing a motion to dismiss, which is what you do in federal court. And they had about a dozen grounds to dismiss the lawsuit. And one of their grounds was that we could not use the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976 that I had found in the, in the rule book because that would be impermissibly retroactive, 
right? The law was passed in 1976, and we're talking about events that took place in the 1930s and 1940s. So they said it was inappropriate to do that. Fortunately, we had a terrific judge in the district court, Florence Marie Cooper. Not just terrific because she ruled in my favor, but also she's a really wonderful person. Um, And she, uh, much to everybody's surprise, said that the case could go forward. Right? There was really no one expecting this. And, uh, and she rejected this argument on sovereign immunity. Now, because it was a sovereign immunity question, because we were suing a foreign country, they had an immediate right to an appeal in the Ninth Circuit. This isn't true for any other type of case. So they went to the Ninth Circuit, and I argued for the first time in front of three judges in the Ninth Circuit in Pasadena. And again, the issues were the Sovereign Immunity Act. Is it impermissibly retroactive, etc.? And again, much to everybody's surprise, we won 3-0. All three judges agreed with our position. Well, at this point, the United States government started getting phone calls from Japan and Mexico and places like that saying, are we about to get sued for everything that ever happened in our country in the United States, uh, what is going on in this crazy court in the Ninth Circuit in California? And the U.S. government actually filed a brief then against us seeking reversal of this decision in the Ninth Circuit. Thank goodness the Ninth Circuit didn't, didn't change its mind. They, the judges did not change their opinion. But then, of course, Austria petitioned to the Supreme Court to hear the case. Now, ordinarily, the Supreme Court doesn't take many cases. But when you're a foreign country and you have the U.S. government on your side, it sort of increases the chances. And the Supreme Court actually took the case. So although we had won at the district court, we won at the Ninth Circuit, once the Supreme Court took the case, all bets were off again. Because for those of you who are lawyers, you know the Ninth Circuit gets reversed like 180% of the time. Uh, They're always doing things that the Supreme Court says is completely wrong. And so this really appeared to be one of those type of cases. So I prepared then to go and argue this case in the U.S. Supreme Court, obviously for the first time for me. And it was a little bit of a surreal experience. I had prepared for it by having what, what they call moot court practice sessions. Uh, I did one at Santa Clara and one at USC and one in, at Georgetown Law School. And professors and lawyers pretend to be the justices and they pepper you with questions. So you, you think you're, you know, you're getting a lot of practice. And I, I felt like I... I had been asked everything, and I really was ready for this experience, but I didn't have very high expectations. I I wanted, my main goal was that we wouldn't lose 9-0, right? That we would get at least one justice to give our side of the story. And, uh, but by the time I got up to speak, I was the last speaker because Austria's lawyer went first and then the U.S. government lawyer. Uh, It seemed that at least some of the justices were, if not leaning our way, at least entertaining the possibility that we might be right. And so I I got up to speak, and you don't prepare a speech in the Supreme Court uh, because they interrupt you, right? So I I had just an outline, and I said, there are four grounds for affirming the Ninth Circuit. Ground one is, and I said the first ground, and I got interrupted by Justice Souter. And uh, Justice Souter has since retired. He had a very strong New England drawl, uh, and he started asking me this long, convoluted question. And it sounded to me like da 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 like that. And and that's that's what I heard. I had no idea. So. Unfortunately, there's, there's no videotape, but there's, there's an audio tape. You could actually, unfortunately, listen to this. And, and so 
you can hear me say, um, uh, I, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't understand the question. <laughs> and then there, there were gasps from the audience, right? <laughs> like I was the skater that fell on the first jump. It was that type of moment. And, but all of the other justices just smiled as if to say, oh, he does that all the time. <laughs> we, we didn't understand it either, right? And, and it was complete, an icebreaker, completely uh, terrific for me because it, it really just, it, it, it was a surreal situation. What am I, going to lecture the Supreme Court? I'm just a kid representing my grandmother's friend, right? <laughs> Trying to convince them that we should be able to sue a country to recover paintings that had never left Vienna. I mean, it was completely crazy. So the rest of the argument went like a dream. They'd ask questions. I'd answer if I could. I didn't make things up. Uh, and it was, it was terrific. And afterwards, I just sort of floated out of the Supreme Court. And my dad, who's a retired judge, I think for the first time, I thought you might actually have a chance of winning, right? <laughs> and, and we were all excited and I got home and I opened up the, the Daily Journal, our law newspaper, and it had a big headline on the, on the argument. It said, court likely to reverse Altman case. And it was all about how we were going to lose, a full page. And I called up the journalist. I said, you know, couldn't you have said, Randy does a pretty good job, right? And the, the, <laughs> Something, right? Because, of course, everybody expected uh, us to lose. And here it was in black and white. I said, okay, well, you, you know... He said, I could tell by the body language. I've been reviewing the Supreme Court for 35 years, that type of thing. You, you don't stand a chance, is what he told me. So I said, uh, okay, that's probably true. Can you do me a favor? When you find out, can you call me? Because the Supreme Court doesn't tell you in advance when they make a decision. They just announce it. And the only people there every day are the journalists. So I said, if, when you find out, give me a call. So sure enough, th three months later, I'm... Uh, making breakfast for the kids, right? It's three hours later in Washington, and we get, uh, get a phone call. And it's this journalist, Dave Pike, and he says, this is Dave Pike. And I say, okay, give me the bad news. He said, not bad news. You won. 6-3. Oh. And I nearly fainted, right? I mean, I always knew it was possible, but didn't want to believe it. So we won. I tried to call Maria, and and she her line was busy, of course, because everyone was calling her. So I I drove over to her house, and we embraced, and everybody was so happy, and then we realized, what did we win? Right? <laughs> we won the right to start the lawsuit in Los Angeles. That was it. We were at square one. So this was already 2004 uh, when, when this happened. And uh, so then we went in, back into regular litigation, uh, what I affectionately called discovery hell, uh, where the lawyers basically torture each other, and I'm pretty good at that. But we got uh, into that for about a year and a half, and then finally we had a court-ordered mediation. Now, up to this point, 2005, it was the year seven of the case, the Austrians had refused to meet with us to discuss the case, had refused to even entertain the idea of any type of resolution or settlement. So when we had to do the mediation, I said, it's not going anywhere, Maria. We just have to show up. It's a formality. I said, I said to the other side, I said, you pick the mediator, you pick the place, I don't care. So they picked a historian, not a lawyer, but a historian from Graz, Austria. Uh, and it was at their office. And we went there. And very quickly, he said, you know, I sense that both sides want to get this over with. 
So Maria was 89 years old. Yes, we wanted to get it over with. I think the Austrians had a different idea of what over, over with meant uh, than we did. But yes, both sides wanted to get it over with. And he said, well, why don't we have an arbitration in Austria? You pick one arbitrator, they pick the other. Those two pick the third. And we'll have three Austrian arbitrators decide the case. Because after all, it depends on Austrian law and everything's in German. And this is, by the way, something I had written to the Austrian government after the initial decision in 1999, and it had been flatly rejected. The minister had said, if you don't like it, go to court, right? So that's what we did. Uh, But now they had come around seven years later, and they wanted to do an arbitration. So I said, well, let me talk to my client. And I went in a closed room with Maria, and I said, isn't this great? We can do this arbitration, and it would be terrific. And she said, are you crazy? Right. We, we have every judge loves us. Right. All the way up to the Supreme Court. Why would I want to go back and trust Austrians to decide this case? And I said, Maria, if you want this case decided in your lifetime, we have to take this chance because they will drag it out and drag it out endlessly in our court system. We could go back up to the Supreme Court, uh, even if we were to win and they could refuse to comply with the judgment. And what then? Right. So this could go on forever. I said this way, if we go into Austria and do an arbitration, if we win, we really win. So she thankfully she she stuck with me and we agreed to do an arbitration. I went to Vienna and I did an arbitration. It was in German. I had a translator, but my German's pretty good. And uh, it was there are no live witnesses to Adele Blochbauer's will of 1923. So it was all about the legal issues and the documents and what they said. And the arbitrators were supposed to make a ruling relatively quickly, but it dragged on and on. And finally, uh, after rumors were swirling in Vienna that we had lost, there was uh, a night in January where I was returning home from a poker game where I had lost a little money, feeling a little dejected. And sure enough, on my BlackBerry, there was a a message from the arbitrators. Uh, And it's nine hours later in, in Austria. It was in the morning there. And I went to the computer to open it up, and it was the decision. And I had to read it, right? So you know German, right? The, the verb's always at the end, and it goes really so I'm flipping page, page, right? Finally, I get to the verb, we won. We won unanimously. All three Austrian arbitrators agreed with the argument that I had made all along, which was that Adele Blochbauer may have wanted her husband to give these paintings after his death, but he didn't. And he wasn't bound to do that. She didn't give the paintings to the museum. They were his paintings. And he gave his estate to his heirs, not to the Austrian gallery. So that in 1948, when this deal was made to leave the Klim paintings in the museum, it was a deal in exchange for export permits. And therefore, under Austria's new law, these paintings had to be returned. So they ordered the return of five Klimt paintings, five very famous Klimt paintings, uh, to Maria and her family, and then we celebrated. Uh, it was a, it was a great it was a great moment. Um, so very quickly, we had to decide what to do with them. Austria had negotiated for the right to buy the paintings, but they they decided in a matter of weeks that they didn't want to, and so we had to decide what to do. So I contacted Stephanie Barron, a curator at the LA County Museum of Art, and I called her up and I said, Stephanie. Um, 
how'd you like to have an exhibit of uh, five Klimt paintings? And she said, we'd love to have an exhibit. And she, in 30 days, put together a major exhibit. We managed to get the paintings out of Austria and into the L.A. County Museum of Art. And it was really one of the most successful exhibits that they've ever had with just the five paintings. And they were, again, in one room, just like they had been in Ferdinand's home. He had kept them all in a single room, a memorial to his dear wife. Uh, and that's how they were presented to the public in Los Angeles. And then for the first time, Maria could show her children and grandchildren, most of whom had not been to Vienna, these paintings that had been in her her family home, in her uncle and aunt's home. Uh, it was really, for me, the best moment of the, of the whole thing, because our, our motivation had always been to... Uh, try to recover the paintings, but also to tell the story. Right. Because whether we won or lost, what happened to this family is, is emblematic of what happened to so many millions of families during World War II. And the, to the extent that we could use this story as a vehicle for telling again and reminding people what had happened during the Nazi years, uh, we thought it was a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, having recovered the paintings, of course, they were extremely valuable, uh, and the heirs had to decide what to do with them. And uh, so they ended up making a decision. It wasn't just Maria, but her, her sister and brother's families. They decided to sell this gold portrait to Ronald Lauder for the Neue Gallery, his Museum of German-Austrian Art in New York. And it's on permanent display in the Neue Gallery on 86th and 5th. So if you go to New York, you can see this magnificent picture. The other paintings were then auctioned off at Christie's and found their way, presumably, into private collections. Uh, a lot of people are very upset by that because they were taken out of the public eye and put in, in private collections. But uh, we have to remember, these were private property. They were in a, a family home until they were taken out by the Nazis in 1938 uh, and, uh, and expropriated. So I think it's somewhat appropriate that they're back in, in private collections, and I'm not sure actually where they, where they are. I heard a rumor one was in Montecito, but I'm not sure if anybody's seen it. <laughs> uh, maybe this one, I don't know. Anyway, so, so one of them. Um, so that's the story of, of the famous Klimt paintings. As a, as a result of this case, I actually handled a number of other cases, and we're going to take uh, questions. I may be able to talk about them. This painting, by the way, uh, which was also stolen from Ferdinand Blochbauer, was not returned. The same arbitrators decided not to return it, despite the fact that it clearly belonged to Ferdinand and was taken from him. Um, it also uh, was alleged to have been in the hands of the family, this woman's family. She was herself murdered by the Nazis, along with one of her daughters. Uh, another daughter managed to survive, and her husband supposedly got the painting from Ferdinand. Uh, I don't believe it, but that's what the story is, and then sold it to an art dealer. Uh, so her family also tried to claim the picture, and uh, the Austrians said, well, Two Jewish families fighting over painting. We're going to give it to none of you. And so they kept it, and it's on display in the Austrian gallery. Uh, totally outrageous, I think. Uh, this is a painting that Maria Altman's brother-in-law, Bernard Altman, owned uh, the Austrian gallery, got it from Gustav Uschitzky, remember him, uh, who bought it in, a, in the auction of his property. And, uh, and that was recovered by his heirs, uh, as well as various other paintings. So there are many, many stolen paintings. If you want to see 
uh, some really hot stolen paintings. These two, Cranach, are hanging in Pasadena at the Norton Simon Museum. Uh, they are 100% looted art. They were owned by a Jewish dealer named Schaudsticker. Uh, he fled and drowned, fell off the boat, leaving uh, Holland, fleeing into England. Uh, uh, Hermann Goering ended up getting these paintings from his collection. They were collected by the Monuments Men. Remember them? Uh, what did the Monuments do? Men do? Did they give it back to individuals? No, they gave it back to Holland. Holland kept this and 200 other works from the Houtsticker collection uh, and refused to give them back to his widow. Uh, in the 1960s, the Dutch sold these two paintings to a Count Stroganoff, like Beef Stroganoff, right? And he, uh, he had falsely alleged that they had been taken by the Russians during the Communist Revolution from his family, but they actually weren't. They were probably taken from a church. That's another story. Uh, but they, uh, he sold the paintings to Norton Simon, who put them in his museum. And uh, there's been litigation going on for six years now. It's in the Ninth Circuit. Again, uh, the question right now for the Ninth Circuit is, would allowing this suit to recover these paintings uh, interfere with U.S. foreign policy? Because, because the Dutch uh, didn't give it back. The Dutch, I should add, uh, in 2006, one week after the Klimt paintings were returned, they returned another 198 pictures to the Houtsticker family. But, of course, these they had already sold. Um, so I'm sure the Dutch wouldn't mind if Norton Simon gave them back, but uh, the lawyers are fighting over it. So the, the, there are a lot of stolen paintings still out there. Uh, these are a good example. I wanted to finish by saying that as a result of, of the success, very unexpected success in this case, I was able to uh, also get very involved with the Los Angeles Museum of the Holocaust. And I've been president of the museum for the last eight years, during which time we built a new museum. It's in Pan Pacific Park, which is across from the Grove in the Fairfax and Beverly area of Los Angeles, if you know where that is. Uh, and it's a beautiful new museum. The museum itself, the architecture, just won two awards from the American Institute of Architecture. It's only the sixth building in the last 63 years to win both an award for the exterior and the interior of the building. So it's a beautiful building in itself. Um, and you can see some of here. So I, li I like to remind people when we talk about these famous paintings and the artworks and what happened to the Klimt's, uh, I think you need to keep things in perspective. There's a good reason why we're still talking about paintings. Paintings were not the first thing on everybody's mind after the end of the war, right? There were many other things that people had to worry about. Six million people had been murdered. Uh, their people needed to rebuild their lives. And putting paintings back in the right place, I think, wasn't high on everybody's agenda, uh, which is why we're still talking about it now decades, decades later. They are one of the few things, though, that can be uh, restored even 60, 70 years after the fact. And it's really so amazingly fulfilling for me that I've been able to spend some of my time with this type of work. Coming from a family, as I do, of refugees, of victims of the Nazis, uh, all four of my grandparents fled from the Nazis and found refuge here in the United States. I have one great-grandfather who was left behind and, and was murdered in Treblinka. For me to be able to, you know, as, as the second or third generation after, to be able to participate in 
just a little bit of making things right has been really the most fulfilling part of my life. And I thank you very much for coming and listening today. I think, I, I think that we have time for some questions. But remember that this is going to be on the University of California's television network. And therefore, we have to use the microphones. And I, I see that there's a microphone here. I'm not sure whether there's a microphone. Is there a microphone there? So, so those of you who want to ask questions, you have to come to the microphones on that side or this side. So who's going to start? You have to come forward. Wait a second. We can't see. So, uh, okay, great. That was an amazing presentation, wasn't it? Extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. Okay. So we have our first uh, question. Go ahead, please. If you know, what's the status of all the real estate that these people left behind? Can you turn it back on? There we go. The question was, what happened to the real estate? I showed you some of it. Uh, very good question. So uh, this palais actually was returned to the Blochbauers after the paintings were. We had another arbitration. Uh, and this, they, they returned because it had been essentially thrown away by the family in 1955 as part of the settlement of the sugar company shares. In other words, to, in order to resolve that, they were required to give up a claim to this uh, palais, which had been taken over during the Nazi period and used as uh, offices for the railroad, for the uh, Nazi and, and Austrian, later the Austrian railroad. So it was in federal hands, and they had an arbitration procedure and ended up returning it. The castle outside of Prague, which was the home of Reinhard Heydrich, uh, the Blochbauers never recovered any property from Czechoslovakia. They tried after the war, but uh, shortly after the war, in that 1948 time frame, uh, the uh, communists took over and all claims of restitution were wiped out. The Czechs belatedly um, passed a restitution law after things changed. Uh, in the 1990s, but that law only allowed uh, original victims and their children to apply for a very small amount of restitution. Maria, as a niece and heir uh, by will, was not entitled to to make any claim. Um, What happened to the property was uh, the Czechs, after uh, Václav Havel took over, this was still in in government hands, right? The government had, had taken it from as Nazi property, and it was owned by the government. Uh, but before they passed a law allowing for restitution of property, the Czechs privatized properties like this and sold them off for peanuts to, to private companies and individuals so they couldn't be recovered. So this has never been recovered. It's apparently lying uh, in a sort of semi-ruined state and there was an article a couple of years ago that one of Reinhard Heydrich's kids, because they had sort of grown up in this house, uh, was talking about maybe fixing it up or buying it and fixing it up. And then that was that was uh, quashed. He didn't realize that they don't really like the Heydrichs um, in, 
in the Czech, Czech Republic. But, but the Czechs, as nice as they are, and I, I love them, but they're not so great on the restitution front. And so this um, is emblematic, really, of what, what has transpired all over Eastern Europe. So not just Czech Republic, but Slovakia, Hungary, Poland, especially Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, etc., um, have not been very good at unwinding all of these transactions and returning Jewish property. When, when I say not very good, I mean terrible. <laughs> uh, so th- I hope that answers the question. Do we have any other? No one else is lined up to ask a question? Come over? I think people should maybe come down and, and line up if, if you're interested in asking a question. Right? So that we can go through. Yes. Hi. Uh, my name is Celeste Weedman, and I contacted you mm, maybe 2009 or 2008. I'm the granddaughter of Emitz Feibruck, uh-huh. an artist and designer from Vienna. And uh, you, by email, introduced me to Sophie Lilly, and I met with her in Vienna. Um, I'm doing a huge research project now on my grandmother and mother's artwork, and I discovered huge collections of her work in the MAC and other museums there. There are large private collections as well, and uh, it's still Austria is difficult to do. <laughs> they don't really want to um, discuss it with me, yeah. and I'm, I'm dealing with issues of yeah. copyright and current exhibitions yeah. and so on. Uh, one publisher's already produced postcards using my grandmother's right. work. Where can I get support for that now here? I am in dialogue with yeah. Sophie Lilly and an attorney there, but I need some support here. Very, um, it's very hard. The question is, so where, where can you get support for claims if you're dealing with, with the Austrians? Um, or even just to talk with someone about the game plan. Yeah, you know? it's, it's very difficult. I mean, these, these cases are all so different. Uh, it's very hard and, and so unusual and rare that it's very hard to find uh, people who, who can really help or know anything about it. I, I often say to people, you can do it as well as I can uh, because there, there is no expert in how to handle some of these cases. Um, it's, it's an interesting fact. You know, if, if someone today uh, breaks into your home and steals your property, you can go to the police and help. They'll help find the person. Maybe they'll come and look at the crime scene. They'll take records. If they find the person, they'll help recover your property. That was never the case for Jews in in Europe, anywhere in Europe. So when their property was taken, the police were the enemy. Uh, After the war, there was never any agency set up to help people recover their property. Not one. And it's really that that's really the thing that that caused, I think, the most problem. Everybody was on his or her own and had to, uh, had to recover things on their own. I, I think the, the organization that helps people these days, um, to some degree, is the Claims Conference in New York. They handle a lot of claims, but they, they may or may not be able to help. Um, and then there are legal aid organizations like Betzedek, uh, which is a Jewish legal aid organization in Los Angeles, and they have a Holocaust reparations clinic where they help people. Uh, and then lawyers and people like like me who who have some experience in this also offer offer to help. But it's it's very tough. And and uh, as you said, the Austrians can be difficult to deal with. It's it's almost as if sometimes they they sort of want to do the right thing, but not completely. So they'll do it halfway. Uh, and you can see with the Klimt paintings, right, they give back some property, but can't really go all the way and, and give it back. 
uh, without being forced. And so sometimes you have, to, you have to use other means. But if you want, we can talk later about it. There's another question? Yes, go up to the mic, please. Based on your experience with this, I was wondering um, at what point, if ever, you think that one would lose their claim of restitution after 100 years, 500 years? It's a good question. What should be uh, the limit on these uh, type of claims? Um, And we we have rules, and and Europe also has rules uh, that allow for a statute of limitations, for example. Uh, The California statute of limitations, for a while... Uh, when we were litigating, allowed Nazi looted art claims to be filed without, without regard to any other statute of limitation. Um, that, that statute was declared unconstitutional in a 2-1 decision by the Ninth Circuit in the Cronach painting case. Uh, we then had the California statute of limitations amended, and I was involved in, in that. Um, so now, th- now you have six years after discovery, and it's not just Nazi looted artwork, but any other artwork. So if the artwork has not been found, has not been located uh, in the United States, at least, they have a discovery rule in most states. And sometimes it's three years, sometimes it's five, six years uh, that allows you a certain amount of time after you find your artwork to recover it. So in that sense, in California now, the law will allow you to go 100 years if it stays hidden for 100 years, because the rule in the United States is that a thief cannot convey good title. What does that mean? So the original owner keeps ownership of the work after it's stolen, even if it's handed through six different individuals, even if it's sold to someone who buys it in good faith, the original owner gets to keep it. Um, Interestingly, the European rule is, is the opposite. Uh, The European rule, the original owner has the duty to try to alert everybody uh, that the painting is stolen, and if someone buys something in good faith, they get to keep it. Uh, I'll give you an example of where that, that really uh, came, came to the fore. And I, I have to say, it's, it, it, this is a hard issue. This is a very hard issue. Uh, it's really like, like King Solomon, right? The, the famous story where the, the women are fighting over the baby, and he says, oh, let's cut the baby in half, right? And then the real mother says, no, she can have it. Okay, so... Unfortunately, our law doesn't allow the judge to be King Solomon and say, oh, cut the baby in half. Uh, It has to decide who gets to keep the baby. Is it the original owner or is it the good faith purchaser? And you have essentially two victims, right? You have the original owner who lost it when a thief stole it. And then you have someone who may have bought the painting without having any idea that it was stolen. Um, This is a perfect example. This Picasso painting was owned by a family from Berlin, and was sent for safekeeping to the art dealer Justin Tannhauser, in, who was then in Paris. He was a German art dealer, uh, but in Paris in the 1930s. Uh, Tannhauser fled. If you ever go to the Guggenheim Museum, you'll see the Tannhauser wing with all of their good artwork. Um, he fled Paris, and this was on a wall. He actually had a picture of this on the wall of his home uh, and his, his, uh, where he, he sold his artworks. Um, so after the war, it was... Uh, published, this small picture, black and white picture of this painting was published in a book on looted art missing from France. And, uh, but it, it disappeared. Um, in the 1970s, a, an art dealer uh, who lives here in Santa Barbara, I believe, uh, but was then in New York, bought the painting, not knowing it was stolen, from a French dealer. 
who told him that it came from the Picasso family. Um, and uh, he put it in a window in his shop in New York and uh, a very wealthy family, the Alsdorfs from Chicago. Anybody from Chicago? There's the Alsdorf wing of East Asian art at the Art Institute of Chicago. Uh, they plunked down, I think, $375,000 in the 1970s for this picture. Okay, So obviously they had no idea that it was Nazi looted art. They put it in their home, uh, Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, and then Mr. Alsdorf died. And Mrs. Alsdorf decided she would try to sell it, uh, and a dealer sent it to, to Switzerland. And uh, someone interested in buying it contacted the Art Loss Register. The Art Loss Register is a, uh, a basically a computer database. It's funded by the auction companies, um, and it keeps track of looted art. And they said, this is a missing painting. It's been missing since... World War II. It's published in this book of missing paintings. And, uh, and they actually tracked down the grandson of the original owner, who was the last remaining heir, uh, who was studying uh, law at Berkeley. And when they couldn't resolve the case, they introduced him to me, and I had to file a lawsuit against the woman in Chicago. And it was a long, complicated story. It took years to settle. Uh, but she ultimately ended up paying for this painting again, and she paid over $7 million in order to keep it. Uh, but what was the, the issue was, uh, for her, very hard to understand. Here she was, an innocent party, right? She had paid money completely innocently and purchased this. And what should the rule be? Should the rule be this American rule that the original owner keeps title and the good faith purchaser is out of luck? Or should it be the European rule? Because remember, the dealer had bought it in Europe in good faith, right? And so if he got good title according to European law, why shouldn't he have good title when he brings it over here? So that, that's an open, unanswered question in the law right now, and that's why a lot of these cases settle instead of going all the way to trial, because we're not quite sure whether a court would apply the French law that says that the dealer got good title or the American law that says the dealer didn't get good title and that she didn't get good title. So very comp- these cases are extremely complicated. Um, and when you talk about statute of limitations and certain defenses, uh, it's extremely complicated. But I, I think the, the, the correct approach is the American approach, especially for these type of works, especially given the fact that uh, victims of the Nazis weren't able to go out and tell people that their artworks were stolen. They weren't allowed, really, the same avenues as everybody else to protect their works and prevent it from being sold. Thank you for that question. We have time for one more question, and I'm going to go over here to the right side. Sure. So go ahead, please. Yeah, I just had... um, I I saw in the paper a few years back uh, that Russia um, had an exhibit, I believe, in New York at the Met, and... There was this whole controversial issue brought up about it being stolen stuff as well. And then there is all this stuff about Hasidish literature that had been kept uh, by Russia and is in their galleries um, being shown. So how common is this problem? And I know that after that whole ordeal, Russia didn't want to actually go out and let their artwork go around the world. And you lose the public interest of it. And, of course, there's American diplomatic relations that are hurt. So how common is this, and what is there that you can actually do as a country, you know? Right. Well, a lot depends on on the approach of our government here in the United States. Um, I was actually involved a little bit in one of these cases. The Russians, uh, after the end of communism, 
right? They have these artworks that were were expropriated, were taken without compensation from wealthy Russian families. The most famous is the Shukin collection that uh, I think is at the Hermitage of every famous Impressionist painting you can imagine. And these have been going on tour, and every once in a while the Shukin family does something to try to get them back. Uh, and it's a question, I, I thought it was an open question, but apparently not according to our State Department, whether our country recognizes the communists' expropriations of 1917 or not? Um, the answer is they do. Our country says that's fine and we're not going to mess with uh, Russia on those issues. So we're, even when the paintings come here to, to the United States, they're granted immunity uh, by the State Department and they can tour the United States and not, uh, and not have to return these artworks. Now, Russia has also other artworks that were taken as uh, as trophies after the, their victory in World War II. And this is a little bit more of a, of a complicated issue because there is a tradition under international law for countries, especially countries like Russia, who were attacked uh, and suffered great losses, for those countries to be able to get compensation by taking artworks from the defeated country. So Russia took a number of German artworks from German museums Uh, thinking they were German property. Uh, Some of them may actually have been Jewish property that the German museums had taken and put in their collection, so it makes it sort of doubly taken. But they took a lot of these back to Russia. You know, they took everything. They took trucks and machinery and food and whatever they found uh, and sent them back to Russia to compensate for all the damages that they had incurred. Um, And there it's, it's a little problematic. Now, you mentioned... By the way, the Russia and Germany have a continuing dialogue about the return of a lot of those artworks. Whenever Merkel and Putin get together, it's one of their topics of conversation, um, I guess, And uh, when he's not watching skating. And uh, uh, then you mentioned also the, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe has his uh, family library, which was taken by the Russians. That was discovered. There's an ongoing lawsuit in in Washington um, that's based pretty much on the Altman case, uh, suing a foreign country for property taken in violation of international law. The Russians chose not to respond, uh, and there was a default judgment, and then it went up on appeal, and it's a complicated case. And the, the problem is sort of like the problem that I talked with Maria Altman about. Um, let's say you win. What then in the United States? So they're they're doing this lawsuit, but the Russians can just say, uh, we don't care that you have a judgment against us saying that we have to return these. We're going to keep them. And uh, and so really, some of these cases need uh, need a different avenue for resolution. And that's that's certainly one of them. Did you have a follow up or you're. Um, the uh, you know, you no longer have a country willing to um, cooperate with you, right. what what avenues do you follow? Yeah. Uh, I mean, war is the only answer, right? No, there's, there's, it, seriously, there's not much you can do from one country to get another country to do something um, short, of, short of declaring war, and, and it's really uh, not something probably that our, that our government wants to do. So unfortunately, uh, our time is up. I, I want to thank you all again for coming. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.